Countries that are net food importers, such as the UAE and Singapore, have been investing in high-tech controlled environment agriculture startups in the last two to four years like never before. Also known as CEA, controlled environment agriculture is the practice of growing fresh produce in an indoor or sheltered environment. CEA can be done just about anywhere, inside glass greenhouses, vertically stacked shelves in a factory, or even in a supermarket. The industry considers itself a solution to current food security concerns as well as the long-term need to feed 10 billion people by 2050. But the sector is not without significant challenges. For a start, its high energy needs mean some countries could be trading one import headache for another if they don't have sufficient land to generate renewable energy. And of the many startups that have launched in the last 10 years, none have achieved the variety of crops required to deliver a person's calorie needs, let alone achieving the scale required to do this while making a profit. So what can we actually believe about all of the industry's highly built selling points? In this episode of Spotlight, we'll hear from senior execs at App Harvest and Plenty, who firmly believe the world will eventually have to grow more of its food in indoor environments. We also speak to Astarnal Ventures, which has invested in multiple companies involved in the sector. I'm Benjamin Ali with AgriInvestor. Large-scale greenhouses have been growing vegetables such as peppers and tomatoes in an economically viable way for decades. With the help of new and existing technology, proponents of vertical farms and high-tech greenhouses that don't use any soil, such as hydroponics, say indoor air can take an even larger share of the food production mix, while having a lower impact on the climate than agriculture. Their closed-loop systems can use upwards of 90% less water than open-field farming. They have zero chemical inputs runoff, can free up land for uses other than food production, and they can deliver year-round supply just as easily in urban areas as they can in harsh desert climates. Many in the U.S. where there is far less development in controlled environment ag in these large greenhouses have to realize that the world has long been leveraging in a proven way with good unit economics greenhouses to produce high-quality products, particularly as you know in Amsterdam. That's David Lee, president and board member at App Harvest a Kentucky-based greenhouse grower that uses a hydroponic system to grow tomatoes and leafy greens. Amsterdam is the second largest exporter globally of food, you know, the number one being the United States, and yet it's a fraction of the size of the U.S. Well, why? Well, it's because they figured out, as we are doing as well, how to rapidly increase yield through technology. Founded in 2017 by Jonathan Webb, App Harvest has tried to stack all of the cards in its favor. Its no-soil system uses 90% less water than open-field farming. Its greenhouses make use of sunlight as well as artificial light to reduce their energy use. The company says its location in Appalachia in the east of the U.S. puts it within a day's drive of 70% of the U.S. population, and it doesn't use any chemical pesticides. However, the five-year-old business is still very much in growth mode, and Lee, a former exec at Del Monte and Impossible Foods, acknowledges it still has a lot to prove. I think there's still an open question on whether young companies like ours can live up to the rigor of large institutional investors. You know, we went public and in July of 2021, we had to reset our business, change our guidance. I led a 50% reduction in force of our non-operating, non-production team, five zero, not one five percent. You know, those tough decisions to tighten your belt, set more realistic expectations, they'll pay off in the long run with investors. The company's Q2 2021 results show that the full year 2021 net sales outlook had been revised down. This moved down from a range of between $20 million to $25 million, down to between $7 million and $9 million. Expected losses, meanwhile, were revised up. This moved up from between $48 million to $52 million, up to between $70 million and $75 million. The boat has since steadied. App Harvest was able to deliver against its new outlook in its full year 2021 results, 
while Q2 2022 results showed that despite a lower yield than at the same time last year, it was able to secure almost 40% more revenue thanks to higher tomato prices. The company currently grows produce from its 60-acre Moorhead, Kentucky facility that grows tomatoes. It has added a 15-acre salad greens facility this year, also located in Kentucky, and plans to add a further 90 acres across two facilities in the state before year-end, as it seeks to reach the type of scale that will allow it to lower its cost of goods sold and, eventually, reach profitability. What has long been true is that food attracts strong investment for decades. Now, it usually was accrued in you know prior years, much more to the large incumbents like Del Monte, where I worked, because they had proven established cost of goods sold that was being lowered by scale. But one of the reasons why investors are now investing in companies like App Harvest or Benson Hill, where I'm on the board as well, and Impossible Foods, is the consumer has voted with their wallets or their stomachs. You know, consumers want better food. They are demanding it. One university estimated here just in the United States, there's 20,000 acres of controlled environment ag demand. Like, you know, there's so much demand that while I'm doing a little over 150 acres dramatically, which is fast growth, you know, we need thousands and thousands of more acres to supply customer need today. And that customer demand is increasing, actually. But to be clear, the need for young companies to deliver on unit economics, on a path to eventual profitability, on the fundamentals to be sustainable financially, those have not changed. I think what's changed is you're seeing consumers demand products that are better, which helps all of us in this initiative to do well by the world, but also to do well by investors. And I think that fundamental change is happening. And I'm encouraged, actually, I'm very optimistic, despite all the headlines we see on food security and climate change, I'm quite optimistic that investors, entrepreneurs, and sources of technology are converging quickly in this fight to create better food. One of the key ingredients a CEA facility must have to grow any food is energy. And if the facility is going to have any hope of growing food sustainably, it has to be renewable energy such as solar or wind. But what about the land needed for solar or wind farms to generate indoor ag's energy needs? If that land use is taken into consideration, does indoor ag still use less land than open field farming? Joining us now to look into this is Till Weirdner, a postdoctoral researcher at Swiss University ETH Zurich. Weirdner was the lead author of a study produced alongside Oxford University that was published in March, which set out to answer this net land use question. The study investigated whether greenhouses and vertical farms do indeed deliver a land use saving when land needed for energy generation is taken into consideration. In the end, what we found that greenhouses usually have the lowest land footprint. And this is electrified greenhouses with renewable energy. And then vertical farming is often similar to open field farming. But then when we looked at context specific or location specific land use, we call this the relative land use. We found sometimes a very contrasting picture and sometimes the kind of confirming the net picture. But in general, what we found is if there is a lot of farmland and you don't have that much land for energy generation, you don't save land per se, and you're just using up the sparse land you have for energy generation that you could use for other purposes. And that was, for example, the case in Stockholm. There's a lot of forest, it's pretty built up, and there's a lot of farmland, but not much land to put solar panels and wind farms. And also, contrastingly, Dubai, in this case, Reykjavik in Iceland, had very different conditions where there's very little farmland and a lot of land for energy generation. So in some sense, the net land use doesn't really matter. It really depends on where you are and what your local conditions are. Weirdner adds that this regional quirk means some countries with high net food imports could trade one import problem for another, 
if they look to CEA as a solution to food security. Countries want to, for example, increase their self-sufficiency. An example for a very, very high share of food being imported. What I want to stress is with this regional picture and, and thinking about the current energy crisis as well, energy will be much more critical in the sense that you want to be self-sufficient in it. So if you trade the food imports with energy imports, you're essentially still reliant on other countries and geopolitical happenings. Another notable company in the high-tech CEA world is California-based Plenty, a pure-play vertical farming startup founded in 2014. We're joined by Nate Story, Plenty's co-founder and chief science officer who says the company spends a lot of time selecting the locations of its facilities and considers things like the local grid's energy mix, efficient access to dense population areas to limit its carbon footprint, and whether it's providing the highest and best use of land. It's a huge part of the thinking. So when, when we're looking at sites, that's kind of one of the chief questions, right, is what is the grid mix of, you know, sources here, energy sources, and what are power costs, right? So these things are really important. Story adds that despite CEA's energy needs, it's important to also consider the other sustainability gains and benefits it does deliver, such as significantly reduced water use, no chemical pesticide or fertilizer use, no runoff and the ability to use brownfield land and warehouses that have struggled to find other tenants. I think that ag is a critical thing to the planet. Field ag, greenhouse ag, indoor ag. All of these things are critical to feeding a population that is growing, that has more demand for the products that come out of these systems. But the reality is ag has not been a good thing for the planet. We shouldn't live in kind of the delusion that ag is somehow a positive thing for the planet. It's not, right? Cutting down forests and turning them into cornfields. That's not a good thing. Tilling up virgin prairie, it's not a good thing. Killing off, you know, all of the native species in order to grow your field of whatever is, it's not a good thing. You know, egg has always kind of been the first solar industry, if you think about it that way. But capturing that solar energy comes at a cost and capturing it something that we can use and sell comes at a cost. And we tend to kind of just look past that, right? We either want something to be good or bad. And we don't want to deal with the fact that Ag has always kind of had this, you know, somewhat mixed past when it comes to benefit to humanity and damage to the planet. And so, you know, I think as agronomists, as folks that are trying to solve this problem of how do we feed the world and keep feeding the world for the next 50, 100, 200 years, uh, we're constantly faced with the trade-off, right? Of saying, what is the least damaging way to do this work? What is the technology suite that puts us on a path to being able to use the most renewable form of energy in the future? What is the thing that puts us on a path to a future that's sustainable green, a, a future where we can give land back? You know, take all this marginal farmland that we're using today that just doesn't quite make sense and give it back to its highest and best use, which is the natural landscape. And it's always a trade-off. And we're making trades right now today that say, we believe that the grid is going to be the most sustainable source of energy in the future. It is today, but we believe that it will be in the future as well. That's a bet we're making. Plenty has raised more than $900 million across five funding rounds, picking up investors such as SoftBank and Jeff Bezos in a $200 million Series B in July 2017, shortly after Amazon acquired Whole Foods in a $13.7 billion deal a month earlier. More recently, Plenty's $140 million Series D in 2020 brought in California-based global berries giant Driscoll's, while the startup's January 2022 $400 million Series E received support from Walmart. Clearly, Investor sentiment is strong, and given the number of blue-chip backers Plenty has picked up along the way, many of whom are investing long-term and strategic capital, they're banking on vertical farms having a place in the future food production mix. But in the immediate term, the CEA industry has been hugely challenged by the energy crisis. In the UK, 
an area in the southeast of the country known as Cucumber Capital, which is home to 180 hectares of greenhouses, largely went unplanted this year, with stakeholders representing 70% of the area deciding that it made most financial sense to do nothing. Things aren't much better in the Netherlands, where the Dutch CEA industry body estimated in September that 40% of its 3,000 members were in financial distress due to the high gas prices. As an investor, especially in these economic times, we're looking for companies that are profitable finally. That's Arnold Dijkash, who is investment principal at Astano Ventures. Astano's 325 million euro fund has backed Germany's Infarm, as well as indoor ag-enabling technology companies UNU and Source Ag. You've seen a lot of companies especially in the US, went public with a promise, with a promise of growing to scale and growing to profitability. And I guess that's where we will see who's swimming naked, as Warren Buffett would say. Daikash says the energy crisis reiterates the need for CEA companies to have a sound business model, which can withstand the input shocks as and when they arrive. We work a lot with the startups to have a solid business model, something that works. And I think that's also where Infarm has been very successful, is convincing their customers that their solution is actually something that could work. Of course, now with the energy situation, I think every grower will admit that it's very hard to grow profitably. Uh, gas prices, which are needed, gas is needed in greenhouses a lot of times. It's, it's very hard. And I think intelligence, again, from the likes of Source Ag, really help growers to make better investment decisions in that sense. How to be profitable even with different input prices. And that's also where technology comes in. So you need an investor base as a company that's strong enough to sustain you through difficult times as any startup has. And that's the path to profitability and path to maturity that every startup needs to take. So I'm quite positive that these companies will get there, but not all of them. And so maybe just to add to that answer then is that it's an interesting time for investors because this is the time when you will see which companies are successful and where you can invest and where you can add value as an investor. With regards to Infarm specifically, Dicash says the company is still at a place in its development where it makes more sense to capture the growth opportunities on offer instead of switching gears and thinking about posting a profit. Well, there's a trade-off always between profitability and growth and Infarm is still very much at a growth stage. They have so much backlog. They have hundreds of millions of contracts that they're still deploying. They're still building. Every time that you think, well, now is a good time to sort of look back and relax, there's more growth opportunity going on, especially in places like the Middle East, where there's a big need for food security. And we see even that in Europe now more and more with the situation in Ukraine, that more people want food security and vertical farming can be a solution to that. But as Weirdner points out, vertical farms in particular have to expand their product offering to more high-calorie crops if they are to become a more significant part of the food security jigsaw. Currently, what is being sold is not feeding the world. It's basil, it's other um, herbs, there's some lettuce, but the calorie content is almost zero at the moment and the nutrient content depends. But if there is a food crisis where people need the calories, they also need nutrients. But then the question is if you get that from lettuce, better than from other things. So if the vertical farm wants to come true to their claims of we can feed the world, we can you know, be a reliable supply for emergency situations, then I think there is a big need to also go into other crops and then design growing systems in a way that these other crops can be profitably grown. You might need to increase the height of the bed, you might need the bed height actually flexible, depending on the growth stage of the crop. And probably very smart design solutions can be found here that allow vertical farms to produce other sort of crops that would make more sense from a food security perspective. One of those crops is likely to be rice, 
a high-calorie staple that is eaten around the world and is being pioneered in a vertical farm setting by researchers in China. Other stakeholders are optimizing mushrooms in a vertical farming setting, while Plenty is in the process of adding strawberries to its array of leafy greens. Despite the limited crop output today, Plenty's Nate story is in no doubt about CEA's role in feeding the world. A lot of the geopolitical weirdness of late just drives home the point that human beings are not necessarily in complete control of our food supply. That should be a terrifying thing because for most of the history of our species, we have struggled with the specter of starvation and plague and hunger. And it's really been a modern luxury that that's not something we've had to think about, right? We go to the grocery store and there are things on the shelf, always. It's really just the last couple of years with the pandemic and with all of the geopolitical craziness in Ukraine that people are starting to think about this again and say, maybe we do need to think about a hardened food production system. Maybe we do need to think about a food production system that is less globalized and more local. Maybe we do need to think about how we give people the tools to grow the food that they need closer to home. And so I think that that is you know, part of the larger quest that we are all on as part of this industry. David Lee adds that the UN's prediction that 60% more food will be needed by 2050 means CEA will inevitably have a larger role to play. According to the World Bank, agriculture already uses 70% of the Earth's fresh water supply, while the UN Food and Agriculture Organization says the industry uses 38% of the global land surface. I talked about this idea of inevitability. You know, as an optimist, I believe that we will be able to feed our planet. I believe that we will be able to avoid the lines for food that absent new technology will occur in the lifetime of my kids, our kids. And because I believe that, I believe that controlled environment ag is critically important and inevitable. Now, which company will accrue the most benefit for which investors is hard for anyone to predict. But I'm seeing today dramatic growth in the use of technology in controlled environment ag. And and I'm seeing it happen with the potential of unit economics that create financial sustainability. So I I think it's going to be a very important part of our solution globally. And that's all we have time for today. If you want to listen to more episodes of Spotlight, you can find us wherever you listen to your podcasts. For Agri Investor, I'm Benjamin Nally.